Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. We talk about novels and short stories. We're going to talk about plotting our novel in a moment. It's an important subject, uh, a continuation from last time. But first, let me mention the power of a story. A novel can have an almost magical power, an ability to entertain and instruct, instruct to make readers' lives better by taking them away from their everyday lives uh, to somewhere new and fascinating. Sometimes uh, a story can change lives. I read David McCullough's book on the building of the Panama Canal, the pathway between the seas. President Theodore Roosevelt was a, a driving force behind the building of the Panama Canal, which uh, occurred between the years 1904 and 1914. After one engineer couldn't seem to get the project going, Roosevelt hired John Stevens, who became one of the great engineers in American history. This is from McCullough's book. Theodore Roosevelt had taken a great liking to John Stevens. Stevens, in addition to his other attributes, was a reader of books. Roosevelt had discovered, and this is now Roosevelt, quote, and he has the same trick that I have of reading over and over again books for which he really cares. That's Roosevelt. Uh, Stevens' favorite novel of all was Huckleberry Finn, which he read, quote, continually. And this, to Roosevelt, was the mark of the finest literary discernment. That's David McCullough. Two of our great people in history, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and, and John Stevens, read novels they liked continually. That's the power of a story. Those novels were taking them to new places. What is the novel that alerted you to the power of a story? the novel, maybe early in your life, that seized you. I can remember three or four instances of being entirely captivated uh, captivated by a piece of writing where I remember being affected, and I also remember exactly where I was when I read it. One was James Fenimore Cooper's The Deerslayer. I read it when I was 13 years old, visiting my grandparents' cabin on Hood Canal in Washington State. Uh, I recall it was a sunny day, and, and my grandpa was whistling Bye Bye Birdie, as he always did when doing chores around the cabin. The Deerslayer was written in 1841 and is, and is one of several novels featuring the frontiersman Natty Bumpo. Uh, perhaps the most famous piece of American literary criticism is of the Deerslayer, and it's by Mark Twain. Uh, the the uh, title of Mark Twain's piece is Fenimore Cooper's Literary Offenses. It was written in 1895. Mark Twain wrote at the beginning of the essay, quote, In one place in Deerslayer, and in the restricted space of two-thirds of a page, Cooper has scored 114 offenses against literary art out of a possible 115. It breaks the record, 
end quote. That's Mark Twain. He then lists 18 out of 19 rules, quote, governing literary art in domain of romantic fiction, end quote, that Cooper violates in The Deerslayer. It is a devastatingly funny review, a piece by Mark Twain, one of the funniest things I've ever read. And many critics have subsequently pointed out uh, Twain was entirely unfair to the novel. If you want to read Mark Twain's piece, uh, go to Google and type in James Fenimore Cooper's Literary Offenses, and you'll easily find it. I'm glad James Fenimore Cooper was already dead when Twain published this piece because this would have killed him. But who cares? I was 13, and James Fenimore Cooper told a magnificent story of a brave man's adventures in the wilderness, of natives and canoes and bows and arrows and flintlock pistols, and of a beautiful woman. I was captivated. I was captivated. I was taken away. That's the power of a strong story. You remember a novel like that? Uh, a novel, maybe when you were young, that seized you? I'm fascinated by this subject, how a novel can capture you. Most of the time uh, on these podcasts, we talk about two main topics, strong plotting and strong sentence-by-sentence -sentence writing. Let's return to strong plotting. There's an old saying in publishing. Uh, a publisher will always choose a strong story with weak writing over a weak story with strong writing. If our plots are not strong, they won't hold a publisher or a reader's interest. And there's really no point in writing beautifully if our plot isn't strong. It's like making a finely crafted speech with lovely lines in a room by yourself. So let's return to plotting. Here's a 30-second summary of the points about plotting from our last episode. And this is from Jack Bickham in his great book, Scene and Structure. Jack Bickham says readers want these five things in a story. First, they are fascinated and threatened by significant change. Second, they want the story to start with such a change. Third, they want to have a story question to worry about. Four, they want the story question answered in the story ending. And five, readers will quickly lose patience with everything but material that relates to the story question. This is an important list. Uh, let's talk about number five. Readers quickly uh, losing patience with everything but material that relates to the story question. What is material that relates to the story question, and what is material that doesn't relate to the story question? Well, here's my cat, Jack, just jumped onto my desk. How many toes does a cat have? Eighteen. Did you know that? Five on each of the front paws and four on each of the back paws. I didn't know that. I read it on the internet, so it must be true. I've never bothered to grab Jack and count his toes, which is one of the reasons we get along so well. He's 
lying down on my desk and he'll stare at me until mealtime, but I usually don't favor carnivores staring at me, but I'll, I'll persevere. Readers will quickly lose patience with uh, things that don't relate to the story questions. Uh, most often those things are over-description, flashbacks, backstory, subplots that don't contribute to the story question, uh, characters that aren't important to the story. But what is material that best relates to the story question? What should our novel contain so that the reader keeps reading? The first is conflict. You've heard me speak of conflict before. Conflict is the fundamental element of fiction. Playwright Elia Kazan describes it as, quote, two dogs fighting over a bone, end quote. In our lives, conflict carries a negative connotation, but in fiction, it's critical because in literature, only trouble is interesting. That's an important uh, notion. Only trouble is interesting. And it's a hard thing for many new writers. This isn't so in in our real lives. We We search for periods of comfort and peace and happiness and pleasure. These are interesting and important to us as we live our lives. But comfort and peace and happiness usually make for dull reading in a novel or short story. Here are two scenarios. Which makes for better reading? Here's the first one. Lisa wants to start a restaurant business. She rents a storefront, designs a menu, hires a cook, places advertisements in the local paper, has a, a, a gala grand opening, and the business takes off with tables filled to capacity each night. The end. Here's the second scenario. Lisa wants to start a catering business. She has no money. Her father says he'll loan her the money, but only if she dumps her fiancé. She says no. Her fiancé's lecherous father offers to loan her the money, but only if she accepts his foul advances. She refuses. A girlfriend finally loans her the money. Lisa rents a building, then finds that termites have, have dangerously weakened the flooring. Uh, the building inspector finds tiny and imagined problems as Lisa tries to remodel a building, and the inspector clearly wants a bribe, which she refuses. The building inspector puts a stop work order on the building remodel. Lisa's leg falls through the floor, cutting her badly. While she's recovering, her fiancé meets someone new and dumps her. Nobody comes to the restaurant's opening night. Her girlfriend demands repayment of the loan. Her leg wound becomes infected and she has to go to the hospital. Her ex-fiancé never mailed a medical insurance premium, so she has no insurance. Is this second scenario uh, preposterous in fiction? Ask Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, or Dickens's Oliver Twist, or Lee Child's Jack Reacher, or uh, Patricia Cornwell's K. Scarpetta, or Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Uh, he, he, uh, Ellison's Invisible Man is so invisible, Ellison never gives him a name in a novel. 
Charles Baker in Burning Down the House puts it this way, quote, say what you will about it. Hell is story friendly. If you want a compelling story, put your protagonist among the damned. The mechanisms of hell are nicely attuned to the mechanisms of narrative. Not so the pleasure of the pleasures of paradise. Paradise is not a story. It's about what happens when the stories are over. End quote. That's Charles Baxter. Uh, let's look at a romance. John and Julie meet on a blind date. Both are handsome, smart, and popular. They are the same race, religion, and political persuasion. Their parents like each other. They find rewarding jobs and have two children who are smart, handsome, and well-adjusted. <laughs> to whom is this a good story? Uh, to John and Julie. To the reader, no, not, not at all. But try this. A young man and woman love each other desperately, but their parents loathe each other. Well, that's Romeo and Juliet from Shakespeare. They love each other passionately, but he is black and she is white, and he has an enemy who wants to punish him. That's Othello from Shakespeare. Or, they love each other, but she is married. That's Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Or, he loves her passionately, but she loves someone else, and she is, and she finally falls in love with him only when he has, he has worn out his passion for her, and that uh, is gone with the wind. I read somewhere a formula for good plotting. I can't remember where I read it. I wish I did. The formula is this: D equals D plus D, which is drama equals desire plus danger. Isn't that exactly right? It seems simple, but what is the most common new writer's fault with this formula? What do many new writers don't get about the D equals D plus D? It's often creating a protagonist who is too passive. And there's a reason new writers do this. Uh, we writers are observers. We watch the human condition and we identify with a character who observes and reflects. We ourselves do a lot of observing and reflecting and sitting. And so we often write about what we know, which is to create a character who is too inert and passionless. An inert, passionless, passionless character leads to an inert and passionless story. Here's a key to fiction. To engage the reader, the protagonist must want something intensely. Aristotle said man is his desire. The thing the character wants needs, need not be violent or spectacular or strange. The intensity of the wanting introduces an element of danger. Uh, she may want nothing more than to open a restaurant but if so, she must feel that her identity and her future depend on her opening the restaurant. Great dangers don't often need to be hugely spectacular. We don't necessarily need commandos or Tyrannosaurus rex or vampires or, or car chases to create dangers. Uh, the most profound 
impediments to a character's desires can be their own bodies or their friends or their lovers or their families. I read this somewhere too, and I can't remember where. More passion can be destroyed at the breakfast table than on a battlefield. Once the, the conflict and trouble uh, are established, the, the conflict must come to a crisis, the final turning point, and a resolution. At the end of the story, the reader wants order, not chaos. The reader wants closure. This seldom happens in, in life because life goes on, uh, but it should in fiction. Notice the difference between fiction and real life. In fiction, the heroine, Jill, and the man she has been in love with for so long and has finally won, Adam, end the novel with a passionate kiss and embrace. Or they hold hands and look out at the ocean, or uh, metaphorically viewing their happy future together. That's the end of a novel. What a great novel. What a great ending. In real life, they have to let go of each other and go out to the car and go grocery, go to the grocery store, like all the rest of us. Life for us goes on, as it must. For our fictional characters, everything stops at the perfectly satisfying ending. If not a happy ending, an ending that answers the story question and fits the novel. In Gone with the Wind... Scarlet watches Rhett walk away, and she vows tomorrow is another day. She's reaffirmed her commitment to action. We don't know what will happen, but we, we know she will do whatever is necessary because we've learned a lot about her by the end of the novel. In real life, she has to turn around and deal with the painters who want more money to work the next day. That's not how fiction works. I've sometimes asked myself, uh, Gone with the Wind is, is a great American novel and one of my favorites, and I've sometimes asked myself if, if Scarlet eventually gets Rhett back. I think she does. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I like her, but I'm confident in her uh, conniving and scheming ability. I, I, think she'll, I think in the future she will succeed. Here is a pop quiz. Remember them from school? Uh, the teacher would say, Class, put down your books and take out a piece of paper and a pencil. Remember, everyone in the class would wince. There's nothing in life more unfair than a pop quiz. But here's the quiz. There are only three words in the English language that begin with the letters DW. They're all common words. What are they? They are this. Dwarf, dwindle, and dwell. I can think another of another, dweeb, one of my favorite words, uh, but uh, I don't know if that's standard English. I just found it in my online dictionary, so maybe there are four words that begin with DW. Dwarf, dwindle, dwell, and dweeb. Here's another pop quiz. What are the 14 punctuation marks in English, in English grammar? They are the period, which the British call the full stop, the question mark, the exclamation point, the comma, the semicolon, the colon, the dash, the hyphen, the parentheses, brackets, braces, the apostrophe, quotation marks, and ellipses.
I had to look up braces. I had no idea what they are. Uh, brackets, braces, and parentheses are symbols used to contain words that are a further explanation or are considered a group. I don't know the difference between brackets, braces, and parentheses and when they are used, and I don't care about it. Let's return to, to plotting. Michael Deirda is a book critic for the Washington Post, and he has won a Pulitzer Prize. He has some really uh, good uh, descriptions of novel plotting. He describes it as a power struggle between equal forces. And he says that each party must have sufficient power that the reader is left in doubt as to the outcome. This will generate uh, conflict and generate trouble. Uh, we may hope and think that the hero will triumph, uh, but the enemy must represent a real and potent danger. And uh, Michael Deirdre says, if the power is one-sided, there'll be no suspense. He says the story's complications are attained by shifting the power back and forth from one to the other. And finally, at the end of the story, something will occur that permanently shifts the power to the heroine. That's uh, Michael Deirdre. And by power, I don't necessarily mean physical power. It can be wisdom, knowledge, wealth, rank, beauty, uh, moral power, and, and there are others. What are Scarlett O'Hara's source of power? her sources. Well, the first is beauty. In the first pages of the novel, Margaret Mitchell, the author, assures us that that Scarlett O'Hara isn't beautiful, but the reader knows better, and certainly the movie shows otherwise. Uh, beauty is power. Uh, other sources of her power are her family's wealth, uh, her uh, determination. She has a never-say-die attitude, uh, and uh, another source of her power is a relentlessly scheming personality. These things make her powerful. Uh, what about uh, Rhett Butler's source of power? Well, certainly his handsomeness. He has a, a dashing, devil-may-care attitude. He seems indifferent to danger. Uh, he has a, uh, a deep understanding of, of people and of, and of smuggling, certainly. And he also has a nobility that he himself may deny, that, but that's revealed near the end of the novel. These things make him powerful. And what about Ashley, uh, Scarlet's love interest much of her life? His power stems from uh, certainly from physical beauty. Uh, and he also has, uh, in the novel and in the movie, uh, an irresistible otherworldliness. He seems to be uh, somewhere above the world and its concerns. And then he, uh, another source of his power is his nobility. He is going to join the fight. I want to return a minute to uh, our topic of novels that grabbed us maybe when we were young and maybe changed our lives or certainly made us want to write and read more, made us literary. Uh, 
if you have such a novel uh, in mind, I'd like to hear from you about it. Please send me a, an email uh, to Jim Thayer Seattle at gmail.com. Was it uh, A Wrinkle in Time? Was it Lord of the Rings or uh, a James Bond novel or uh, something by Mark Twain? Or might it have been The Great Gatsby or To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Mockingbird or uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland? Uh, what grabbed you? Could it have been uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved or... The Perks of Being a Wallflower or uh, Anne of Green Gables. Uh, let me know if you're so in mind. Uh, we've come to the end of this uh, episode. Uh, I'm glad you were along for it. Uh, until next time, and, and next time we'll talk a little more about plotting. This is Jim Thayer. Until then, keep tapping those keys. <laughs>